Well, as you know, we've spent many weeks now working our way through the, the New Testament book of 1 Timothy, and I think we're actually getting pretty close to the end now. In fact, this might even be the last one. We, we started back in September, and uh, we've covered quite a lot of ground as, as we've gone through. And uh, we've looked at the, the glorious gospel and how the gospel is like a, a precious gemstone that needs preserving and, and protecting from false teaching, but also needs putting on display so that people can see its radiance. And we saw that if the gospel was this gem, then the church is like a, a setting for the jewel. It's like a, a diamond set into a ring. And the more we get church right, the more we enhance the beauty of the gospel. And we looked at prayer and worship. And that led us to look at the, the roles and conduct of men and women in the church. Do you remember that? I think we got through unscathed. Didn't we? <laughs> and then we went and looked at other sort of very practical subjects that this letter deals with. We looked at requirements for eldership. We looked at how we should treat the the poor and the needy among us. And then, of course, in this final chapter, we've looked at our attitudes to money. With a call to contentment for those who don't have money and a call to humility for those who do. And you can decide which category you come into. Probably both. But all through this letter... The Apostle Paul, who wrote it, has switched back and forth between instructions that he wants Timothy to pass on to the church and instructions that he has specifically for Timothy himself. And in these six short verses that I've just read, he is addressing Timothy directly. But he doesn't use Timothy's name. He uses this wonderful title, but you, man of God. It's a a wonderful title. In the Old Testament, that title, Man of God, was actually used quite sparingly. And it was really only the, the leaders of Israel that seemed worthy of carrying such a title. Moses was referred to as Man of God. You see that Samuel and, and David also were and great prophets like Elijah and Elisha. And so you can just imagine little Timothy, reading this letter for the first time and thinking, wow, me, Timothy, man of God. But, you know, it wasn't accidental. Paul was saying, you are the man of the hour. You are the person that God has called to be in this place at this time. You are God's man. And do you know, the same is true of you. God has called you to be here. God has called you to be in this church, in this city, in 2008. You are his man of the hour. You know, there's only one other use of that title in the New Testament, man of God. And you find it in the second letter to Timothy, in uh, 2 Timothy 3. It's actually in a, a section that's headed in the NIV, the same as the section we're looking at, Paul's charge to Timothy. And it talks there about the usefulness of Scripture for everyone. And it says that it is so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
So no longer is it occasional heroes of the faith, like Moses and Elijah, that warrant this title, man of God. Now it is any believer who is reading scripture and and growing in Christian maturity. But don't think that God has somehow lowered the bar on what it means to be a man of God. You know, it used to be Moses, but now it's pretty much anybody. Now, he hasn't lowered the bar. He's raised you up. This is God's grace. This is a new covenant age when you are saved through faith in Jesus. And it is wonderfully inclusive. In the old covenant, in the old testament, only a few were priests. Now we are all priests. It used to be that only a few were the people of God. Now we are all God's children, those who have put their faith in Jesus. Now you have God's gift of the Holy Spirit within you. So you are a man of God in exactly the same way as Moses and Elijah were men of God. So don't diminish the title and think, oh, well, it doesn't mean what it used to. No, be encouraged. God looks at you and he thinks, man of God. Andy Reid, man of God. <laughs> Jill Davy, woman of God. Do you know, ladies, it is quite appropriate to call yourselves man of God. It sounds a bit odd. You can call yourself woman of God, which is a, sounds a bit more normal. I'm not just being politically correct there. Okay. The Greek word for man in verse 11 is anthrope from which we get anthropoid, anthropologist. It just means human or or person. Okay, so it's gender inclusive. So be encouraged, men of God, women of God. God has called you to a walk with him. God has called you to exploits of faith that leave Moses and Samuel and Elijah in the dark. But as Paul addressed Timothy, but you, man of God, he was also bringing a sense of responsibility and challenge. Because he just talked about people who were spreading lies and stirring up arguments. And people who just wanted to get rich and who saw that financial wealth and materialism were the most important things to live for. These people were more men of the world than men of God. And it's because of this that Paul brings this charge to Timothy. He commands him to act and think in a different way. And then he says in verse 13, I charge you to keep this command. And there are relatively few occasions in scripture when somebody is charged to do something. But they are always very important and poignant times. There's a a soberness in that word charge. And you're meant to take notice. A charge is a command that comes with authority. And things happen as a result. When you're charged to do something, you can't just sit on it. There's action that's required. And that might involve sacrifice or or putting yourself out. It isn't necessarily the comfortable thing to be doing or or the easiest road to take. But but you recognise the authority behind the command. And so you do it. This is a charge. I think it's also significant that this kind of charge often precedes a season of change or transition. 
when Paul wrote 1 Timothy and, and certainly 2 Timothy, it seems that he was kind of aware that he was nearing the end of his life and, and ministry. And it, it brings an added timeliness and urgency to his words. Or take another case, when King David was nearing the end of his reign and he was preparing to hand the throne over to his son Solomon. It says there that he gave a charge to Solomon. This was a new season. Now we enjoy being church together as we are, don't we? And it's so right that we do. Just enjoy who we are. But there's also this sense that we haven't yet seen everything that God has called us to. We're not yet in that place that God has for us. And even as we come again on this gift day, gift day number two, to to bring our money, it's not purely that we are looking back to a debt that has to be paid off. We are also looking forwards. We're looking forwards in faith to the new things that we can engage with, to the new things that we can invest in as a church. So, men and women of God, we need to hear the charge that God brings before us from his word. Well, the charge to Timothy contained four key elements, okay? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. The first charge is to flee from sin and pursue righteousness. That's the first thing that Paul says. Flee from all this. And pursue righteousness. He's been talking about people who just want to get rich. But actually the problem is, is more general than that. This is people who have turned a, a deaf ear to what God wants in their lives. The so-called sound teaching of our Lord Jesus. And instead in a position of rebellion towards God. They followed their own selfish desires and gone along with the evil trends of the world around them. Well, that's sin. And if you know in your heart what God would want you to do, if your conscience is is telling you something and, and yet you block that out and you do your own thing, then that is sin. And you need to flee from sin. Run away. Put as much distance between you and that potential for sin as you can. If you have a tendency to get drunk, don't have a single drink. If you have a a boyfriend or girlfriend and, and you're struggling to stay pure, then don't be alone together at all. Flee from sin. Don't flirt with sin, any sin. Don't see how close to the line you can get without stepping over. Maybe it's the way you deal with customers at work. And you say, well, I I don't lie to them. I just kind of hold back on, on, on the full picture. Or maybe it's gossip at the school gate. And you say, well, I won't say anything, but I'll just listen in for a little while. You see, the devil comes to you and he puts temptation in your mind to do something. And you can begin a kind of courtship dance with the devil. You think, well, what would that thing mean? How how would it work? Would it be worth it? Would I get away with it? 
or you can run the other way. And God says, flee from all this. So come on, let's be radical with dealing with sin. Let's have a spirit of no compromise. Flee from sin. But as you run away from sin, this isn't without direction. Because you're told to flee sin and pursue righteousness. And in fact, it's only when you are actively pursuing righteousness that you can ever really hope to avoid sin. So here are two ways to make sure you are pursuing righteousness, okay? I'll try and keep this practical. The first thing is to think of the opposite of sin. When you're tempted to sin, in whatever way that would be, don't just think about not doing that thing. Think about how you can go overboard in the other direction. So say, for example, you're feeling angry and and bitter against someone, perhaps for something they've said or, or done to you. You could just try and not feel angry or you could actually commit to praying for that person. Pray that God will bless them. You could actually go out of your way to find yourself ways that you can bless them. I don't know, maybe send them a card or something. You see, flee from sin and pursue righteousness. If you find you struggle with materialism and and having a proper attitude to money, then be recklessly generous with what you give away. If you have trouble with swearing, then get into the habit of quoting scripture out loud. You see, whatever the temptation to sin, there is pretty much always an opposite path that will lead you into righteousness. And then secondly, to pursue righteousness, you need to get the conditions right in your life. And there are things that will help you to walk a path of righteousness. And if you are really pursuing righteousness, you will really pursue those things as well. Things like reading your Bible, praying, worshipping, just being committed to church. And I think that includes being committed to um, being a core part of your community group, actually. And uh, in a church of this size, I believe without any doubt whatsoever that our community groups are absolutely essential if we're going to stay healthy and we're going to see the growth that we believe God has promised. I'm convinced. And actually, we have a a wonderful level of commitment to our small groups. and, And it's much higher, actually, than many other churches that I come across and speak to, if not all of them. So, actually, we can commend ourselves and give ourselves a pat on the back. But I do come across people who uh, are not in a community group, are perhaps on the periphery. And the last thing I want to get in a situation like that is heavy and legalistic and say, you must be a part. I don't want to do that. That's not my heart. But there's also a kind of a question hanging in the air over these people. Are you pursuing righteousness? Are you doing everything you can to get the conditions right in your life? Are you preparing the ground so that righteousness can flourish? And these gift days are a a wonderful opportunity to put this verse into practice. So, of course, the the church benefits from from your giving and, and there is a financial need that we have to kind of pay off 
the, the debt. But don't underestimate the good that it does in your own life. Because this is fleeing and pursuing. You are fleeing materialism. You are fleeing greed and self-reliance. And you are pursuing faith. You're pursuing a a dependence on God and a commitment to church and, and everything that we're achieving together. So pursuing righteousness means getting the conditions right in your life. And one of the most important conditions, if I can call it that, is uh, to make sure that you are living in the power of the Holy Spirit. That you continue to look for just fresh anointing, a fresh touch of God, fresh equipping of God each day by his Holy Spirit. You see, verse 11 lists the qualities of life that you are to pursue. And it's actually quite a long list. It starts with righteousness, which we've looked at as kind of a summary. But then it goes on. It says godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. I think, wow, that's quite a lot to be doing. But that list should actually ring a few bells because it's very similar to the the classic list of the fruit of the spirit that you're seeing in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So as a man of God, the best way to pursue all these things in your life is to pursue radical encounters with the Holy Spirit. Go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the way you live your life in love and, and gentleness and all the rest of it, well, that's the inevitable fruit. Of those encounters. It will follow. It will. So the first part of the charge to the man of God. Is to flee from sin. And pursue righteousness. Then we come to what is probably. The the most famous expression in the passage. I guess. Fight the good fight. Of the faith. And. uh, The faith. Here. Means the Christian faith. It's the gospel. It's truth. It's everything you know and experience to be true from God's word. That's the faith. And there is a fight on over the faith. And the picture that's used here in this word fight is of an athletics tournament. And uh, probably it relates specifically to the wrestling contest. Just imagine yourself as part of a, I don't know, a judo contest or, or maybe even sumo wrestling. Can you imagine yourself being a sumo wrestler? Sort of like that. I'm not saying that anybody here looks like a sumo wrestler. But it's that kind of contest. Okay, you are working hard to stand your ground. And all the while you're trying to push your opponent off that ground. It's wrestling. Now you know, don't you, that The fight that we are engaged in is spiritual at its core. That the fight is raging in the heavenlies. It says in Ephesians, we don't fight against flesh or blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We know that, don't we? But there is a danger, I think, that we are so careful to emphasize the spiritual nature of the battle that we forget that it has an effect in the reality of our lives. 
You see, the spiritual realm is not separate from the physical world. It's all kind of somehow tied together in in a mysterious way. But the battle is not over there, so unseen as to be irrelevant. No, it's being fought right here. Right here in the issues that you come up against and and tussle with in your life. It's a, a spiritual battle at its core. But like the wind makes the, the branches of a tree sway backwards and forwards, so the spiritual battle has an effect on what you see going on around you. And Ephesians 6 talks about how you need to take your stand against the devil's schemes. And there are real, physical, tangible ways in which you need to do that. So what are some of the things we fight against? We fight against The steady erosion of the truth of God's word. We fight against God's name being misrepresented with lies being told about him in the church. We fight against disunity. John Hosier made quite a useful comment recently. He said that in new church plant situations, the devil's main tactic is to attack people's jobs, and their health, and the whole area of moving house. Chris and Joe Kilby would be able to testify to that. But in an established church like ours here, the devil's main tactic, so he says, is to break down relationships and sow disunity and conflict. And so we fight against it. And we fight against apathy. You ask people, don't you, what about Jesus? And they say, well, I don't know, I don't really care. And we fight against that. And these are spiritual battles, yeah? But they are being fought in the lives of people you know. And so the fight you need to fight is both spiritual and physical. It's the whole package. These things aren't separate, actually. To win the spiritual battle, you need to pray. Pray for that person who is speaking blasphemous rubbish in front of you. Pray for that person who so needs to hear the gospel, but their heart seems so hard. Cover everything you say and do in prayer. Let worship come out of your mouth as you declare the sovereignty and power of God. Use prophecy and words of knowledge and healing and all the gifts of the Spirit. This is your spiritual weaponry. And uh, you need to use these spiritual weapons. Take up the armour of God, it says in Ephesians 6. But just as important as the spiritual fight is the physical fight. The Israelites worshipped and prayed as they went into battle. But they still went into battle. So how does a, a Christian fight? Well, it's not with fisticuffs. It's not with anger. It's certainly not with bombs and and campaigns of terror. No, a Christian fights with righteousness, with godliness, with faith and love and endurance and gentleness. You fight as you take a stand for Jesus. When you defend him in a crowd... When you speak biblical truth into a conversation that's just starting to drift into lies. When you overcome your fear and you invite that person onto Alpha. 
Stand up for what you believe in. Fight the good fight of the faith. I used to have some excellent tussles with the chairman of the company I used to work for. And I've not met anybody since, really, who's quite so outspoken against what, what I believe in and, and do. And uh, he'd say to me things like, well, you know, if God is so big, he wouldn't care about individuals, would he? That's nonsense. And I'd say, yeah, but Ray, he, he cares for me. And this is the sort of conversation we'd have. On another occasion, I was on a, a first aid course and uh, over coffee, the conversation went something like this. There was somebody who was saying, well, God has got a lot to answer for. And the world would be a better place if nobody mentioned God at all. And uh, it was sort of met with general agreement around the table. So, hmm, yeah, hmm, like that. And uh, what, what was I going to do? I could take that away and I could pray or I could stay and fight. And so I offered up a quick prayer <laughs> and I said, well, that's not really true, is it? And the conversation went on. I don't know that anybody got saved that day, but uh, you never know. So the man of God, the woman of God, doesn't allow untruth and false teaching to just perpetuate or go unchecked. Whether it's unbelievers or even Christians that, are, that you're talking to around you. Take a stand for truth. And the man or woman of God is not content that there are people around you who are ignorant of the gospel. And who are ignorant of the fact that God's power is available to save them. So the charge from God is that you fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. And then the third part of this command is that you are charged to fulfil is that you take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Take hold of eternal life. How much time do you spend thinking about your eternal destiny in Jesus? I don't think we really give it much time at all, do we? And yet Martin Lloyd-Jones reckoned, and he was quoting somebody else, and I don't know who, but he reckoned this, that in the Bible, one verse in every 30 is a reference to the second coming of Jesus. And if you have a head for statistics, he also said that for every reference to Jesus' first coming as a baby in Bethlehem, there are eight references to his second coming. Eight to one. The whole Bible is a book that looks forward. And you can certainly see that when you read the apostles' writing in the New Testament. What motivates them? What excites them? What sustains them through hardship and persecution? Is actually not so much a a sense of gratitude for what Jesus did for them on the cross. Although that is clearly the source of our salvation. But... What excites them is actually that they have taken hold of something that will be theirs for eternity. And when you hear the phrase eternal life, don't be too tempted to focus on the word eternal. Because that's what we tend to do, isn't it? Focus on the word life. We tend to think that eternal life is all about the future. It's what starts when you die. But that's not how the Bible describes it. The emphasis is on the life. 
And that starts right now for the believer. And this is what you have to take hold of. You can't take hold of something that only exists in the future. But eternal life is now. Jesus provided a a very clear definition of eternal life. In uh, John 17 verse 3, he said, now this is eternal life. And if you're looking for a definition, that's always good to see, isn't it? This is eternal life, colon. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And the essence of the life that will be yours for eternity and is yours now is the knowledge you have of God. Now, when the Bible speaks of knowing God, it never means just a an intellectual head knowledge or knowing about God. No, it's the most intimate kind of knowing there is. This is all about experiencing God. To some extent, even understanding God and thinking like he thinks. And it's this eternal knowledge of God that you must take hold of today. And there's something very deliberate, almost violent in that word that's translated take hold When Peter got out of the boat and he started walking on the water and then he messed up and he started to sink, it says that Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. And it's that same word, take hold. It's like when you go out for a walk with a young child and maybe they're running around, but you come up towards a busy road and you take hold of that child's hand and you grab hold of it and you say, stay with me. It's that, it's that sense. Take hold. That's what you're doing with eternal life. Grab hold of it. Hold it tight. And the, the best way I can think of doing that is, is, is this. I'll try and be practical here. I think the best thing you can do is to think what it will be like for you after you have died and gone to be with Jesus. Or after Jesus has returned. Just think what it will be like for you. You see, then you will have full knowledge of God. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So I'm not asking you to think what heaven will be like, because you can debate that for hours. I'm asking what it will be like for you to know God fully. Can you just think how you'll be just dizzy with a sense of awe and, and worship and praise? How you'll just be filled with awe at the sense of God's majesty? Can you imagine, bluntly, how happy you will be? You'll have complete peace. A sense of overwhelming joy. In fact, everything other than your relationship with God will just grow strangely dim and just fade away into the background. I don't think you'll be in a trance because that's not really how you're created. But, but wow, can you just imagine it? To know God fully. Well, that is the eternal life 
that you are to take hold of now. God has made you alive to him. You are born of the spirit. He has put his spirit in you as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So do you know that sense of awe when you come to worship? Do you have peace and joy? Safe in the knowledge that whatever life throws at you at the moment, it is only momentary and not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, it says in Romans 8. Do all the trappings of your life grow just strangely dim when when you compare them with the knowledge you have of the glory of God? You know, when you do something daft, like give significant amounts of money to the church, like we're going to do again today, and maybe you did last week, you are taking hold of eternity. Because actually in eternity, that that holiday or, or that car, or that room that you were going to decorate, that, that won't count for anything. But that person who was saved and added to the church because they saw that something good was happening in Winchester, well, they'll be by your side in heaven forever. It's just great, I think, in this very kind of sober charge that, that Paul brings to Timothy, that, you know, that God makes... This charge from our commander-in-chief to the man and women of God. And at the centre of this charge is actually to be happy. It's actually to have fun and enjoy yourself. And enjoy the, the knowledge of God that you have. That is really taking hold of eternal life. So then finally, I'll finish with this. Man of God you need to keep your eyes fixed on him. And this passage ends with the most majestic statements about God. I mean, let's, just, let's just read them again. God. It just starts there. God. Not proven, just stated. God. The blessed and only ruler. The king of kings and lord of lords who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honour and might forever. And these are great words, aren't they? And I really want them to just kind of soak into your, your spirit this morning. The Apostle Paul, he does this quite a lot and it's, it's wonderful. He can be writing about the most mundane subject, if I can say that reverently about scripture. And then within a few verses, he's just lost in the kind of praise and, and adoration of his God. And in this chapter, it's all about money. It's about being content with what you have and, and being generous to others. But here in the middle, in these few verses, he stops to worship God. And we're about to, to come again and, and give. And we, we benefit wonderfully from this building that we have and, and we've been able to refurbish. But we owe money and, and we need to, to finish the, the repayment for the work that's been done here. And, and we long to see our debts significantly decreased today. Okay, That's what we are longing for. And so we had a gift day last week. 
and we're having another gift day today. And uh, I don't know about you, but it feels to me a bit like being sort of sat in the middle of 1 Timothy 6. Do you know what I mean? You've got these two passages of money, and uh, we're looking at the bit in the middle. And uh, we've got kind of giving behind us last week, and we've got giving ahead of us now, and, and, and here we are in the middle. But, you know, that middle ground in Scripture is filled with the praise and worship of God. The focus, the center point is on him. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. The focus is on him. He has authority over all things. There is nothing that has authority over him. He is immortal, larger than life, outside of time. He is so dazzlingly brilliant in all his radiated glory that you can't even look at him. You certainly can't approach him. The brightest thing that that we can easily understand is our sun, isn't it? And you can look at the sun for a little while before it hurts, but you certainly can't approach it. If the uh, We know how a a light bulb is is measured in watts. So you have a a 60-watt light bulb or you have a a 100-watt light bulb, which is a little bit brighter. Well, if the brightness of the sun was measured in watts, it would be 380 followed by 24 zeros watts. That's one big light bulb. And yet there are billions of stars in our universe. Most of them are bigger and brighter than our sun. And yet God created them all in a single breath. He is awesome, majestic. To him be honour and might forever. And I want that to be our focus as we come again with another opportunity to give. See, we don't worship a building. How stupid would that be? We don't even worship the church. We worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's what we're going to do now, actually. I'm going to ask the worship band to come up. What we're going to do is have a significant time of praise and celebration of our God. I really want our focus to be on him. I want you to go and get your kids at half past 11 and not before. Okay? The, uh, that's only a few minutes. But I don't want you to go now. Because they're working through a program and it's helpful if parents don't arrive before they've finished. That's, that's true every week, actually. So at half past 11, okay, they're expecting you parents to go and get your kids. Please come back as quickly as possible. And then the, the kids workers are going to uh, come back. The Brook Street kids team are going to make their way back here as quickly as possible as well. So that we are all here together. And then as we... Uh, continue to, to praise and worship and celebrate. We're going to come and and, uh, and give again. Now, how we're going to do that? I would like us to all be out of our chairs. The bucket will be down the front as it was last week, and I would like us all to be out of our chairs and moving around the building. Now, I know that many people gave last week, and that's absolutely fine. Okay, I don't want you to feel under any. Uh, pressure. I don't want you to be embarrassed at all if you don't have you know, more, more to give this week. That's absolutely fine. Please be released. 
But please also get out of your chairs and walk, walk around, okay? So I'd like the whole church to be moving, right? I don't just want the, the people who are intending to give this week, right? Now, visitors, that, don't worry about that. You know, if you'd rather stay where you are, then that's absolutely fine. Um, but the rest of us, okay, move. And uh, I've had this expression going around in my head all week. It's that reckless blessing requires reckless faith. And I'm not even sure it stands up completely theologically, but it's been in my head, okay? And what I think it means is this. We all want to be in that place where we really celebrate the money that has come in. We go, yeah, God has done an amazing thing. That kind of out of the ordinary, hallelujah. But you know, to get to that point, we actually need reckless faith. We actually need a kind of sacrificial faith where you think, well, no, I'm not going to take that holiday this year. I'm not going to renew our car this year. We're not going to decorate that room this year. We're going to bring that money instead to God. And I just feel, you know, there's, there's, it's just between you and God, but there's just real value in doing that. So even if you gave last week, you might want to give again. And even if you've not come ready to give this week, you might want to pledge something new. And even if you don't do that today, don't feel that this week you've kind of missed it and that's your last opportunity gone. Let's be reckless in our faith. Let's put God to the test. He tells you to do that. That he might open the floodgates of heaven. So let's pray, shall we? Let's put our focus on our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords. And I guess in this song, you need to go and get your your kids. Okay, let's go.